I'm Paul Sutton, and this is Digital Download, the show where I talk to topic experts on digital marketing, social media, and public relations about the things that matter in today's communications industry. Technology of all kinds has played a massive role in what has played out around the world in the last year. From the extraordinary achievement of producing multiple vaccines for COVID-19 from a standing start, to the global spread of the Black Lives Matter movement, to the controversy around the US election, the internet and technology as a whole has played a pivotal role. We find ourselves now living in a world where the internet and the connectivity it enables is absolutely fundamental to our way of life. And that stretches far beyond communications technology. Our ability to feed ourselves, to entertain ourselves, to educate our kids, and to continue to work during lockdowns has relied largely on a strong broadband connection. Today's guests have maintained a long-held interest in the development of the internet and the way we use it. Neville Hobson has worked in and around the internet for 20 years, recently leaving a role as Director of Digital Marketing for the Internet Society, where he worked for three years. Neville holds a strong belief that the internet should be for everyone. But we're starting with Ewan Semple. Ewan started the BBC's DigiLab in the mid-1990s to introduce new broadcast technologies and works to help organisations and people get their heads around the impact of technology. I asked him how the last year has affected the way we use technology. Clearly, COVID has had a huge impact in terms of, frankly, forcing people to use technologies that some of us have been enthusing about for nearly 20 years now, I guess, and uh, to varying degrees of success. And I think what's fascinating to watch is, in some ways, from my perspective, people are trying to use the tools to replicate what they've had in the face-to-face world, if you like. So, you know, people are are faced with endless Zoom calls one after the other um, without even the, the, the analogue benefit of a break as you walk from one office to another or, or whatever. And also the fact that they are intent on maintaining eye contact or looking like a television news presenter or all sorts of weird side effects, if you like, of this obsession with video, um, which is causing stress. And, and I, I know that, that, you know, speaking to some people, it's changing and not always in a good way, their relationship with their managers. Um, so I think there's an awful lot to be learned. So in a sense, it's been a good thing in the sense that everybody's grappling with it. Um, but I think as with everything, there are good ways and bad ways to, to use these technologies. And, uh, I think if you like, one of the slight frustrations, as I say, is this maintaining some sort of synchronous conversation, whereas asynchronous conversations are what got many of us excited about the internet and about blogging, particularly back in the early days. Where And, you know, and this is now beginning to take place in, in Slack and uh, Teams has the capacity to do this as well. And even, frankly, people are beginning to, I think, change how they use email to accommodate this. But it's, you know, when you get good at it, having a thoughtful asynchronous conversation can in some ways sometimes be be more productive than face-to-face. But we're sort of in this funny netherworld at the moment, I think. I'd listened to one of your podcasts and you were talking sort of along similar lines of this. And you cited the example of, of sort of younger generations who 
will sit on on Zoom calls or WhatsApp or whatever it is all day, and they'll just have it there, but mm-hmm. they're getting on with other stuff. Yes. And then, then, like you say, they're not staring at a camera all day. They're just getting yes. on with stuff and then have a chat when something happens. That's and- right. Which is more like an office in some ways. Yeah. Where you would have that constant ambient presence uh, of the person sitting at the desk next to you, but you'd be doing your own work and just the occasional comment. But we've turned this into, as I say, this sort of performance art, which places people under pressure. Could you see? Could you see a situation where we do get used to doing that, having this always on a screen next to us with all our colleagues on it? Yes, because it's not just... Young folks nowadays, you know, I think a lot of people in in the tech world have got used to this and coders will do the same sort of thing. They'll have, you know, in the old days it would have been Skype running alongside their desk top and and be able to just shout out if they need help on something or whatever. And, and, you know, there are some companies have grown up working entirely remotely. And and in fact, in some cases, they've never actually met their colleagues. And they are much more likely to use the tools in that way where it's really just an extension of using the right tool for the right job and being more more thoughtful about that and not trying to bang a square peg into a round hole and use video for everything when it's not actually that good at much of what we're trying to communicate. And that's, I suppose, like you said, it's with the situation we're in now where everything has to be on a Zoom call nowadays. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. do you know what? The number of times a simple phone call would, would do. But no, you have to get your camera on, sit in front of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'm, I'm now the, the, the sort of talking grumpy old man because there'll be a whole wall <laughs> of people and I'll be blank because I've refused to turn my camera on because it means I can relax and I don't have to sit and stare at the screen and try to look interested. But do you find people don't like that if you do that or if oh yeah you know do, do you get challenged about it oh well by, by my wife um who, <laughs> who, who i hear in her meetings sort of complaining when people don't put their cameras on but i keep pointing out that it, it, the downsides are, are at least as much as the upsides and i had somebody not take me to task but we, we had a robust exchange the other day there uh on a call and he said what's well, so important to maintain eye contact and I said, well, frankly, I have to point out that because you have the Zoom screen down at the bottom corner of your computer screen <laughs> and your camera's at the other side of the computer screen, all I've seen is your forehead the whole way through this conversation. <laughs> you look decidedly shifty. <laughs> We've seen some radical and defining changes in patterns of behaviour over the last 12 months. What's become very clear the longer the pandemic has gone on is that we're not going back to the way things were at the start of 2020. The phrase new normal is now seriously overused, but that's the reality, even if we don't know what that means yet. One thing that I've noticed about the current lockdown is that whereas in the first lockdown of spring 2020, business fell off a cliff for a couple of months, while we all tried to adapt and work in different ways and implement new technology, this time around, it's been largely business as normal. I asked Neville if he felt that this is because we've already adapted and have technologies and processes in place. It's interesting what you say there, because I I observe that too, although, again, it's not even. Um, It's a very uneven picture. If you look at the TV news every time a lockdown's announced, the kinds of businesses that require people to come to them to survive are suddenly shut down. I'm thinking of the hospitality industry in particular. Some of those won't recover. But broadly speaking, we are in a shift. We are in a move uh, to a different way of working. 
And there's there's a number of, of uh, studies on this from people like Harvard Business Review. BBC did a great feature a few months back on what the workplace is likely to look like in 2025. And that's, that's most interesting. Uh, and it, it raises questions that I already see people talking about, which is, how do you design an office building for the new normal? It doesn't require big spaces. It requires actually distancing with barriers and so forth to be built in. Touch are not ideally, so facial recognition that's accelerating the advance of those technologies that raise issues with many people to do with privacy, uh, to do with data security and the, the negativity surrounding all of that because we've got evidence already that many organizations, including some private companies, aren't very good at that kind of thing. So you're entrusting uh, information about yourself to your employer who isn't safeguarding it very well. So that's raised that issue. Mm -hmm. So And these are big issues. Um, and you combine that with what we're seeing in some countries that are harbingers of what's probable in our country, perhaps, which is uh, citizen surveillance uh, and all the stuff of George Orwell that alarms a lot of people. And you, you get a sense that this is kind of hurtling along a little bit out of control. It's accelerating. And yeah. this current situation is a driver of that acceleration. So the interesting thing I find as well, the paradox, if you will, is that we are willing, we collectively as a society, seems to me, to be broadly willing to uh, to give information about ourselves to to the government without any regard to are they safeguarding it. So uh, security and, and, and help with surviving the virus uh, is a good trade-off for your privacy. And that's, that's a, a kind of an uncomfortable scene, I believe. Uh, we need to address that kind of thing. We need to talk about that. Yeah. But I get that, that no one's got much of an appetite for that with all this going on right now, but that won't go away. Uh, and so we rely on people like or organizations developing, developing systems like the General Data Protection uh, regulation GDPR that came into effect two or three years ago. It's still the strongest worldwide to to give uh, give you rights of privacy, but hard to to have debates about that when you're in the middle of a pandemic trying to fix that. So that's all part of the picture as well. These things are changing in a rapid pace, uh, and uh, the day of reckoning is approaching where we have to address that for something that that is robust, secure, and trustworthy. That's the key thing. Yeah. If I think back, maybe but before all this, this happened, so let's go back maybe 18 months. A lot of the talk about the way the internet was developing was around the internet of things and yep. connected devices and what have you. That seems to have died down over the last year, probably because everyone's managing other things. And the focus seems, from my perspective, gone back to communications technology and how do we stay connected using the internet yeah. is that do you think that firstly do you think that's actually true and secondly if it is what where where do we go next with communications technology and how we stay connected for those of us like you said who, who are on the internet what, right. what do you see in the future of that well, that, that's an interesting question. I think IoT is a topic that is still around. It's just not getting attention right now. Yeah. Um, I think the uh, what is getting attention is aware, greater awareness, perhaps, of what I mentioned about privacy. 
uh, and the fact that uh, the pandemic has highlighted how essential something like the internet is to enable us to connect with our family, with our friends, with work colleagues, customers, whoever, uh, banking, you know, all the stuff we take for granted these days uh, until the internet goes down. And that's a common thing in a number of countries, particularly by governments who shut down the internet to prevent dissent being discussed online, stuff like that. Luckily, we, we're not in that kind of climate in this country. So um, that's highlighted something, I think, that has superseded the Internet of Things, if you will, because the Internet of Things is about the devices and the things that we connect to the Internet. Yeah. So the baby alarm, these are the things that people recognize, the baby monitor in the child's bedroom that uses an Internet connection, your Wi-Fi at home to monitor the baby. Uh, the stuff we do that, you know, we, we, we connect to our bank and do transactions, check the balances and all that stuff, whether it's on a mobile phone or a desktop computer or a laptop, whatever it is, it uses a Wi-Fi, our internet connection, do all those things. But more important than that is actually that framework that lets you do that, i.e. the internet itself. So um, we're looking at ensuring that the, the internet, i.e. That, that actual underlying infrastructure is robust uh, is strong enough to to handle the the sudden increased usage that we have seen over the past year, and I've, I've seen quite a bit of of um, reporting in some of the tech press over the past six months, in particular, talking about how robust the internet in the UK has been last year, with with a huge increase in demand for bandwidth. So uh, we take that for granted, uh, but the overall infrastructure um, uh, isn't as as kind of robust or indeed trustworthy everywhere in the world. And that's part of, I think, one of the things that we collectively need to be aware of, but also people like the Internet Society, others, the World Wide Web Foundation, indeed some of the internet service providers, all those tech folks need to be uh, looking at that in collaboration. And some of that's happening, but not enough of it. So that's a thing that needs to, to, to um be, uh, be improved. It's not something that everyone should be concerned about. It doesn't get any press, frankly, but it's the plumbing of the internet, basically, that needs to be robust. So that, in my mind, is the, is the priority, more than IoT, for instance, that will enable all the other things that we want to do to enable us to actually do them in, in the next couple of years. So um, what we're seeing now, following on from last year, is you can see it coming. There's an even greater requirement for using uh, a the internet itself uh, but b all the tools and things that we use to enable us to connect with other people and carry out our business and our private lives and all those things online is going to increase so we need to pay attention to these things right now when it comes to behaviors ewan thinks that companies are going to have to think a lot more seriously over the next couple of years about a combination of behavior and technology and place i do believe that more people are going to dig their heels in when they're told they have to go back to commuting and spending three hours a day or whatever on a train and crowded underground trains or sit just, just to sit in an office staring at the computer screen so their boss can see that they're doing something. You know, I don't, I don't think that's sustainable. Um, and we're sort of beginning to think longer term about well, what will this do to the corporate property market, for instance, where we continue to build massive great glass and steel towers in our cities Um what we're going to fill them with when everybody's going, nah, I'd rather work from home. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, wasn't it, that specifically? I mean, who knows what office, the office world will look like in two or three years' time or five years' time. Yeah. And, and you can't help but think this has changed that for good because, like you say, there is a vast number of people out there who just don't want to commute anymore. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that we don't 
you know, again, right tool for the right job. I mean, there are situations where face-to-face is better. Um, yeah. And I think people will get more sophisticated at taking responsibility for the right mix uh, for themselves and for the company. And again, see, that's that's another interesting shift, isn't it? I was working with a company just before Christmas, which has got two very different and geographically separated divisions. And the chief exec of one of them thought this set of changes was the best thing that could have happened because people could work to their strengths. They could take responsibility for when they worked and how they delivered their work. The other one thought it was his worst nightmare because he didn't trust them. And if he can't see people working, how does he know they're not bunking off? Uh-huh. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's exacerbating some of those deeply held managerial philosophies, if you like, or pr- perspectives. And and that's why it's interesting, you know, that's why this lady from HR is involved with us as well, that how do you change how you manage people and measure people and reward people to encourage and accommodate the stuff we're learning at the moment. And I guess that I mean that can take that could take years and years, perhaps even yeah. decades to will, really It will do. Through. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean the, the, like you said, you've got some deeply ingrained beliefs and behaviours there that are not going to change overnight, despite whatever happens in the next six yeah, months, you know? totally. One of the questions I'm asked most often when I run training sessions on social media marketing is how best to publish, monitor, and analyse social profiles. Without the right software, it's a time-consuming job, especially when we're all doing so many other things as part of our job roles. About 10 years ago, I discovered Agorapulse, an all-in-one solution to social media management and I've used it and recommended it to clients ever since. So I'm delighted to offer listeners of Digital Download a one-month trial of Agorapulse for free. Head to agorapulse.com forward slash digital download to sign up, and then revel in all that spare time you just created. Now, the pace of change has been incredible in the last 12 months, and we've become extremely reliant on the internet for communications, banking, shopping, and a whole lot else. A poor broadband connection has gone from being a source of annoyance to something far more critical. I've read reports, too, I'm sure you have, too, that talk about, you know, we've accelerated like 10 years worth of change in, in a year. Yeah. Uh, by, the, by virtue of the fact we have to. Uh, there was no other option. We had to do this. So that has pushed uh, other things to happen as well. So some other things are in train too, which is related, I think, to mostly to how we work, where we work, and who we work with, and what tools do we use to do that work. So, I mean, Zoom is probably the, the kind of poster child of this change in that, that company um, uh, shifted from uh, you know, being a small player in video conferences at the beginning of last year, beginning of 2020, to this year, to being this multi-hundred billion, hundred plus, hundreds of billions of dollar uh, capitalization uh, and um, being the, the kind of the darling of, of, of this for organizations. There are others now emerging. Um, there's another major competitor, Slack, uh, mm-hmm. been acquired by Salesforce. You've got Microsoft with Microsoft Teams, all these collaboration tools that embrace, some of them embrace everything, video, uh, document sharing and so forth and, and chat, everything is in there. And there are others too, been around a while. Um, you know, people like WebEx, uh, you've got Google. I mean, all of this is there, but suddenly they're getting huge intention and investment in, in building out greater functionality and features in them that make it a lot easier for employees uh, working remotely to work remotely. 
in ways that um, suit their way of working, but also match the employer's way of, work, way of working. It leads to a lot more, what, what I believe is, is the right way of calling it, asynchronous communication, which is um, not the kind of always on, always on demand in the old way, which it really was, your, your Outlook inbox or whatever inbox you use for your email. Uh, often people would, you know, drop everything and look at your email every three or four minutes. I don't yeah. think that has seriously still changed much, but the control of it has definitely shifted. And I know uh, I'm not typical because I've been working uh, well over a decade remotely from home. So I've never really been in that kind of culture of immediate attention to email. But I notice this with others. Uh, that they are able to plan their days better because they work at home. They, many of them, luckily, have employers who encourage that behavior, which is to the benefit of the employer too. So it's forcing that kind of change in organizations. Uh, and the way in which we work, which is, I guess, the bigger uh, uh, thing to pay attention to, is also shifting. Uh, we're using these tools in ways that we weren't before because we are com constantly remote so um, we are seeing also negative effects of that, the, the so-called Zoom burnout and, and all this kind of stuff from, all, from literally being always on remotely. So there's a lot of work still to do, and, and a number of enlightened employers address that kind of thing already. Uh, and I think we're seeing another benefit of the Internet, of course, is we're seeing uh, learnings, use cases, case studies, the works accessible online of the experiences of organizations and what they've been doing right and what didn't work that others can learn from. And that's great. So um, expect to see this getting a lot of attention during 2021, assuming, of course, uh, no, no other horrible things come out of the woodwork, some that we weren't expecting to happen negatively. Uh, as long as we go along, you know, we come out of lockdown in March and maybe we can start traveling again in April, May kind of time, and then we get a sort of a picture of what the year might look like then that makes it easier to plan and predict these things. But I think it's going to happen, uh, hopefully comfortably, the way I've outlined it, if not uncomfortably, it will happen. We will be seeing these changes still coming. One of the major developments online in the last couple of months has concerned the social networks. After months, if not years, Donald Trump was finally kicked off Twitter, closely followed by Facebook and a host of other networks, on the 12th of January. This was closely followed by Twitter deleting in the region of 50,000 QAnon-associated accounts. Now, there is a massive sense of relief among large sections of the internet that Trump has gone, and that he won't be allowed back to wreak havoc in the way he has done in the past. However, there are those who feel uncomfortable with what the tech giants have done, as it represents a form of censorship. Ewan sits somewhere in the middle of this debate and makes a valid point about the social networks being commercial enterprises. I thought Jack Dorsey made a, a good comment about this because he saw having to ban Trump as a failure on their part to cultivate productive conversations. And that's how I kind of tend to see it, that I think... Uh, you know, I wrote and spoke about this when we had the the killings in New Zealand and, and some of that had been exacerbated by social media and there were calls for all the platforms to get involved and start getting in about managing it all. And I worried that that would mean that we would yet again wait for the grown-ups to sort it for us yeah, rather than taking responsibility for the ecosystems that we're part of. Yeah, um, and if I wrote about this the other day, they're saying always look on the bright side. That, that it may feel at the moment that things are overwhelming and you can't affect change in the world. But actually, the only way the world ever changes is because of all the combination of small actions and small statements. And 
you know, so I still am optimistic about that. And I'm more nervous when authority in whatever form steps in to intervene. I'm particularly nervous when that authority is a commercial organisation rather than a an organisational, a societal, a, a social one, you know? Yeah. It's something that I, I have to admit I haven't got my head around yet because something about it sits a bit uneasy with me and mm-hmm. uh, I wish there was a different way. I guess that's it. I, I wish there was a different way of handling it, but clearly at the moment there isn't. And I agree with what they did by taking taking that away. It's just something, I don't know what it is, doesn't sit quite right. No, well, something else that he said was that they take action when they feel that online activity is having a direct and negative effect on offline activity, you know, a potentially risky yeah, yeah. effect on offline activity, which I thought was interesting and appropriate. And also the sort of claims that it had been a clampdown or censorship. He was saying that, no, they as a company made a commercial decision to do what they did and that there wasn't the claimed coordination amongst the different so- software companies. Um, but it's murky. It's not clear. And I, and I uh, you know, in our podcast, we talked a little bit about the fact that you know, that forever there has been discussion about an internet parliament of sorts yeah. or some yeah. global court, perhaps you know, like the International Court of Human Rights or something like that, where where you can take these kind of issues and thrash them out with people from different cultures and different perspectives. Because I mean, you know, it's hard enough when you're in a polarized country as, as America has become over the last few years, but when you're dealing with globally diverse perspectives of what the right thing to do is. Um, and then in the case of the social media companies, you've got a bunch of 15-year-olds responsible for working it out. It's it's not a good <laughs> it's not a good scenario. I asked Neville the same question, and he also brought up Jack Dorsey's disappointment in having to act in the way Twitter did. Trump was a I think an unusual case. Um what he did, uh, allegedly, and indeed, I, keep, I just keep seeing this being reinforced, reinforced now. This is what Trump did, i.e., stimulated the, the the mob to, you know, to break into the Capitol building and do all the stuff that they did. It was so egregious what he did that it had to be addressed, no matter who he was. And indeed, uh, there was a growing sense of alarm, I think, amongst people in in America, particularly in government, about what might be coming next on this guy. It was he was literally out of control? So he had to stop him. Uh, and they did. Um, but Jack Dorsey, I think, articulated well what others have been saying, notably heads of state in European countries, that this was alarming what Twitter did to shut down the president of the United States, uh, no matter what he was allegedly doing or did actually do, no matter that. The fact that a private company uh, in the shape of the CEO who chatted to a number of people within that private company then made a unilateral decision to shut this guy down. And even he said that he wasn't comfortable with this. It raised questions about this. And I think that's absolutely right to state it that way. So this therefore suggests that we're, we're probably at a, a milestone marker right now in terms of um, who controls social, media, social networks. Um, that's not the right, the right word I'm looking for. It's more about who has the power uh, to decide whether somebody... Uh, is able to use it or not Uh, and you think you could uh, you could respond to that by saying well that happens daily they Mm. remove accounts i mean all social networks do if you don't abide by our terms of use and behaviors and guidelines you're out well that's what they said about trump 
and I think, okay, that's fine, uh, in which case uh, you're right, but the way you did this is not right. And it's not a criticism of Twitter precisely. It, it illustrates this milestone I mentioned, that we require now a conversation to be had between not just governments and big tech, because governments typically all they want to do is regulate it and control it. Yeah. It needs others to be involved. And that means everyone, let's call them the stakeholders, uh, and it's everyone, including users. So everyone should have a, a chance to to add their 50 pence worth of comment to what should we do about situations like this. And I think it, uh, it, it, it also means that people like Twitter and Facebook, notably, recognize that the way they've been handling this to date is not the best way to do it. And yes. it, it needed a, a significantly prominent and highly influential person misbehaving to illustrate we got a problem and we've got to find a better way of dealing with this. So I think this may well lead to uh, what I'd like to call benign regulation that's agreed by everyone. Uh, in terms of behaviors, in terms of the rules and the guidelines that, that you have to abide by if you want to take advantage and use a certain method of communicating with others. If you don't like it, then don't join. If you don't like it and do join and misbehave, you'll be booted out and that's how it should be. But I think that's probably a rather utopian, idealistic approach. It'll take a while. And I just hope it does happen. That's the thing. It is not then down to governments because governments, including our own, already making more noises about the need to regulate uh, yep. social social networks. And, and their record in doing that is absolutely appalling. It does not benefit the people who use those networks. It's all about control. So um, we hopefully won't be in that position. Hopefully we will be in the position of everyone having a view and hopefully agreeing something. And um, unfortunately, I'm realistic enough to know that that isn't likely to produce the results we all want. So there'll be a compromise somewhere down the line, but the conversation needs to happen. Are you generally optimistic? Do you feel generally optimistic about social media, about the internet in general, about, you know, given everything that's happened and all that's going on at the moment, do you have a sense of optimism for what's yeah, coming? Yeah, I do. I, I always do. I'm always a glass half full kind of person, Paul, actually. But in this context, uh, notwithstanding what I said, although that's part of the reason to be optimistic, because what Trump did has thrown up and, and, and put itself in a bright spotlight of we have to do this better, all of us. Mm. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, what happened to Parler that was booted out by, Am by, by Amazon, who now I read just today, in fact, are back online again, thanks to a Russian internet service provider. So politics has got in the way again. But that's the nature of it all. It, it will. Uh, and so, you know, are we going to find this kind of mythical place uh, for the future uh, that uh, will help us? Uh, you know, are we going to see uh, networks that are... Um, that are fine, that aren't full of anarchy and manipulation, which which many of them seem to be? Um, uh, are we going to see consolidation? Are we going to see a breakup of big tech, as the American government under Trump has often talked they'd like to do? All these things are question marks. No, no one knows yet. But talking rather than going to war, let's say, is surely a better option that we can find a solution somewhere. Uh, so my optimism is very much there, uh, notwithstanding all of that, because I think there is a willingness uh, in in certain uh, areas of great influence that can influence what happens here uh, to have these conversations. I think, though, I temper the optimism uh, with something I mentioned earlier, which is mainly to do with privacy. 
that is a major, major issue, notwithstanding pandemic and all the things that, that are distracting us. But uh, the, 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 the increasing use of uh, how technologies that are evolving are being used for not good purposes. I'm thinking of things like deep fakes. Yeah. I'm thinking of the way tech has moved forward to such an extent that you can now create video of people from one static photograph uh, that shows them doing all sorts of things and so forth. And you cannot, you, the average person could not tell that it's not fake. Uh, and so uh, that sort of thing, um, educating people to take greater care of their personal information and be, and, and not, not disclose stuff unwilling unwittingly, which is a common practice here. So that requires education. You can't just tell people, oh, change your password, do it better. You've got to show them how to do that. So that's part of it as well. And I think the um, uh, the the answer to the, to this to, to to for me to improve optimism is, that, is that what I mentioned earlier, Paul. About let me call it voluntary oversight uh, by. Uh, everyone involved with the stake in all of this to agree what should happen next. I think that's a major step if we can get that off the ground. Ewan is equally as cautiously optimistic as Neville. In terms of the internet, it's interesting because, I mean, uh, there are now multiple internets. You know, there's the dark net, there's all sorts of yeah. government internets. Um, we can we can't afford to be quite as uh, blasé about the principles persisting indefinitely. But I do think the decentralized nature of IP is still fundamental. Like watching Hong Kong, you know, where they, where they were able to use AirDrop, which is a means of using local connections, combination of Wi-Fi and broadband, the iPhones know that another iPhone's within range and you can AirDrop material content text from one to the other. And the, 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 the protesters in Hong Kong were using that because the, the authorities had pulled the plug on the on the tech companies on the um, telcos. Yeah. And so, so things like that, where the decentralized nature of the basic technology of IP and then the tools that sit on top of that err towards what for me is the optimistic side of things, which is that we're all connected. We're increasingly aware that we're connected. We will become increasingly mature and responsible in the actions we take in that connected world, which will end up, I still think, getting us to a better place. And I'm very wary of defining what that better place is. Mm. But, it, but it will be the emer emergent outcome of all of us having a vested interest in it, in it working. Many thanks to Ewan and Neville for their time. You can find them both on Twitter. You can subscribe to Digital Download on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave a review, as this helps others discover the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>